I am delighted to welcome to the Truth and Rhythm Mothership, Dave Darlington, a multiple Grammy-winning engineer who has amassed more than 1,000 album credits during the past 30 years, and that is only the tip of the iceberg. He has been particularly successful in the R&B and jazz genres, working with many of the biggest acts. Dave, thank you so much for joining me. How are you today? I'm, I'm good, man. It's my pleasure to be here. Thanks for asking me. Oh, fantastic to have you. So, and you're coming to us from where today? Uh, I'm in Manhattan right now. This is uh, my studio on uh, 29th Street. I've been here since um, 1997. And prior to that, I was on 23rd Street. And I started my career on, uh, in time, the Times Square area way back in the 80s. Wow. And is that where you're from originally? No, I, I was born here. I was a little kid here in uh, in Long Island. My parents were um, suburbanites. My dad worked uh, for Eastern Airlines at Kennedy Airport. And when I was 12, uh, Eastern Airlines decided they would collect everybody to Miami. So he announced that we'll move to Miami. And we were, you know, all the kids were like, no, oh, I don't want to leave. And they said, well, you'll have your own bedroom and you'll have, you have a swimming pool. So we went, <laughs> what time is the plane? <laughs> So that particular year, interestingly enough, was the year the Beatles came on Ed Sullivan. So my childhood is in Long Island with baseball and and, and uh, basketball and skateboards. And then my uh, young adulthood is in Miami with Beatles and, and, and surfing and girls. It's a, it's a complete dichotomy. I really have a, like a, a line of demarcation in my youth. And, uh, of course, you know, once the Beatles came on TV, all anybody wanted to know was where do we get an electric guitar and, and how do we work it? So that's I'm sure many, many of our generation have the same story. You know, that's the start of it all, really. I have a little bit of the tale of the two coasts also, because my entire family, except for me, was from New York area. Uh -huh. And my wife is from Long Island. Oh, wow. Uh, but I grew up on the California beaches, so nice. I had a little bit of the two worlds too, like you. Yeah. Um, so it's great to connect with you. I want to thank off the top our mutual friend Bob Grossman. Thank you. Oh you yeah, Bob's for bringing us together. He's one of the reasons I have a studio uh, because I, we were playing in Atlantic City, and we needed a place to to sleep. And he said, "Well, I have an extra room you can rent for the duration." And uh, so I crashed at his house, and he had an actual recording studio in his house. This is, we're talking in the late 70s, early, early 80s. I thought, this is amazing, right, in his suburban house. And he said, yeah, it's just a computer and a tape recorder and a board. And i wow, you know, I could do this too. He really planted the seed in my head. And, in fact, he was just here a month ago. We redid all my wiring. He was down on his, on his hands and knees with me pulling out power strips. It was crazy. He's absolutely the best. Yeah, I've known about 20 years, good friend. Yeah. Uh, but I feel such a connection to you as well, even though we just met, because as we were talking before, you know, I came up being deep into music and going yeah. through the DJ route and yeah. just constantly archiving music to reel-to-reel, -reel, yep. different formats, making mixtapes. It was always uh, about collecting, like, how did, you know, do I have all the Herbie Hancock? Oh, here's one I don't have, you know, that kind of thing. Exactly. So... So I'm sure uh -huh. you remember going to the record store with your buddy, you know, and you each had enough money for one album. So, you know, I'll tell you what, you buy the Earth, Wind & Fire, and I'll buy the Kind of Blue, and then we can switch next Saturday. And also, uh, feeling like a, almost like a, a messenger of God to spread the great music to as many people as possible. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was all about what you knew that was really cool and the other guy didn't yet know about. Yeah, yeah, those were the days. So um, we know a bit from uh, where you're from. 
how did you, uh, you know, really gravitate toward um, studio work? And, and I know that you're also musical to some extent. How yeah. did that evolve? Well, I went to school in, in Gainesville, Florida to be an architect, I thought. And then uh, I didn't like it much the first freshman year. It was not my thing. But I was playing electric bass and I, I got into jazz. Suddenly a lot of hipper people, the older than me, were teaching me about jazz. And I thought, well, how can I get an upright bass? Well, how do I go about that? So I went to the music school, asked them, what, what would it take for me to have a, an upright bass to take home? And they said, well, we always need bot live breathing bodies in the bass section. So just show up Monday night or Wednesday night and you can take the bass home and practice. This is great, win-win. Long story short, I took the bass home, played in the, played in the student orchestra and learned to play a little jazz and loved it to death switch my major. And I was working in Florida as a symphonic bass player right out of college for a while. I was in Jacksonville Symphony for a few years and then I was in the Tampa Symphony for a few years. and. Um, I liked it. It was a good steady gig, you know, a pension plan and dry cleaning allowance for your tails. And, and But I started looking at the older string players and they were not the happiest people in the world. You know, those 50, 60 year old viola players like, oh, not the Shostakovich again. I said, ah, that's, you know, I'm in my mid 20s now and loving everything about music. And I thought, well, that's if I stay in this path, that's going to be me when I'm 60. So. Through a circuitous route, I threw everything in the van and played in some bands on my way up to New York. And somebody told me, you know, if you go to the NYU bulletin board, there's always people looking for roommates. So that's what I did and found a roommate. We're talking in 1975, uh, early, early 75 now. And uh, I got the Village Voice, which was the local paper. I'm sure L.A. had a paper like that. You know, bass players wanted, musicians needed, must sing background vocals that kind of thing. So I answered some ads and got a gig. And so here I was in New York, like not knowing really anybody, but playing and, and making a living. Did that for quite a while. And uh, like I told you, Bob inspired me to get my own studio set up in my house. So I made a bunch of demos with people and I started taking little substitute gigs. Like when engineers wanted to be off for the weekend, you know, I would know enough about certain rooms to go in with the band and just get them on tape. One day when um, the boss of the studio I was subbing at, it was called Secret Sound on here on 24th Street, uh, Danny Weiss, one of my one of my mentors, one of, I call him my rabbi, he uh, he was walking out of the building as I was walking in. I was, He said, where are you going, Dave? I said, well, I'm just going to go down in the room and fool around. Maybe I'll learn something. I'll, maybe I'll get to know the Kurzweil 250 a little better, something like that. He said, come take a walk with me. I'm, I'm I'm going to go interview for a job at the new, at a new studio as the manager, and they need a guy. So that was Counterpoint. That was owned by Jerry Ragavoy, who was the original owner of the original Hit Factory on 48th. He built the Hit Factory. And he's also the composer of Time Is On My Side, which was the Stones cover that was so big. And um, he wrote the whole Joplin album, Take a Piece of My Heart. He was a really, really good songwriter. And he had a MIDI room with a 24 track and a test and a um, Trident B Series B 32 ins and 24 returns. So if you can learn the room by the weekend, you can have the session that's coming in on Monday. We're opening the room for business, and then sure, I can do it. They had a software called Performer, which I had never heard of. I was working in Steinberg on my uh, Atari ST, and and he had a Mac, an actual one of those all-in Macs. We're talking the 85, 86 now, and um, it had to be Performer 1.3 or something like that, but it was 
I kind of knew how to get around on a sequencer, but I had to learn all the keys and keystrokes and everything. And so I stayed there all weekend and learned how to get stuff into the sequencer, back to the tape, back out to the speakers. And uh, Monday morning, I had a job, 10 bucks an hour, and in walked Grandmaster Flash <laughs> with Melly Mel. And that was my very first, you know, paid, paid for hire recording session. And, and I, I was completely hooked. I was still playing. So some sessions I would, would tell the clients, you know, I got to leave at four o'clock. I got a wedding in Huntington I have to play. And they were like, you're the engineer. The engineer doesn't leave. What are you talking about? And so then I quickly realized, you know, I'm going to have to choose one way or the other. And, and I was so psyched to be on records. It just, you know, I finally saw my name on a 12-inch on a and they spelled it wrong, David Darling. But I didn't care. I said to my mom, hey, mom, I'm on a record. Look, you know the feeling. You know, it's just it's so completely addicting. And then, you know, then you meet these wonderful people of, of all abilities and stripes and everything. Some people are just naturals and then some people have to be very guide we have to guide them along and uh you know it's it's kind of great let me, let me ask you a little bit more about that first session what were those guys like and was it the message they were cutting or right yes, they had the message out they called it, it was they were just um i think it was remixing some stuff that they had because they had the vinyl of furious and 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 they were scratching fu fu furious fu fu furious and uh, and Sylvia Robinson was there, you know, from um, from the label. And I didn't, I really didn't know. I knew who, the, you know, Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five was, but I didn't really know who she was. How powerful she was in hip hop. Hip hop was super brand new. I mean, you know, we'd been out five or six years, but they were they were some some cutting edge guys. Yeah, of course, she was ahead of uh, Sugar Hill, and yeah. she also had some hits in her own right, like Pillow yes. Talk. Yeah, Pillow Talk. Um, yeah, were you? Where did you stand mentally with hip hop at that point? Were you like, this, I don't know if this is real music, or were you into it? No, you know, in, in New York at the time, the, the genres were kind of uh, blurred together. There was all kinds of stuff on the radio, and and the radio was blasting out of um, the boutique. So everywhere you went in the city, you would hear really top what was at that time top forty, and you know, of course, those guys were on there, but also uh, Latin freestyle was big, you know, uh, the Latin Rascals and Louis Vega and Jelly Bean Benitez. That was a big genre, and um, and and the rock, the rock, the pop rock of the day, Taylor Dane, or you know, those kind of. I'm just I'm thinking back how many ever many years that was. It probably blur the, the, the yeah. years, but that's, that's what was going on. So the new wave and the alternative stuff. Yeah, yeah. the new wave stuff. So you tried to be not a um, genre based engineer there were guys who were specialists in rock and stuff those you know you had to kind of know a lot about the gear to to make a pop rock tune but you know to just put down a hip-hop track you need a drum machine and a tape recorder and then a good microphone and counterpoint had had some good mics and a good vocal space you had to go through the vocal booth to get out to the coffee machine so when when the guy went into the booth you you couldn't get out to, to use the restroom or, or have a coffee until he was done <laughs> but they they threw the beat down. It took me a it took me a while to get it synced. Back then there was a thing called Simpty, which you had on track twenty four, and that ran the drum machines. First time I passed the Simpty, I wasn't in record. I just I ran the tape for fifteen minutes and didn't record anything, and I had to apologize and say, hey, "Sorry, we got to do it again." And they were they were very patient with me. You know, they were they were all about the music. But so was, when you were. When you were coming up, Dave, and you were more on the on the performance side, um, who are some of your own favorite musical people? Well, 
you know, I always, I always, I, I started in a garage band in the in the British invasion of the '60s. So, um, you know, Beatles and Stones and Kinks and Beach Boys and all that. And then I, I remember an older kid. I was probably in maybe ninth or tenth grade, and an older kid came, knocked on the garage door, and he said, "I'm going to tell you what the new thing is: soul music." And we're like, "Huh? What's soul music?" And so he said, "If you guys can learn Mickey's Monkey perfectly, I'll give you each five bucks." And so we thought, this is great. We had a little trio, so we learned Mickey's Monkey. And of course, we never saw him again. He didn't give us our five bucks. But that was, the, you know, that was when I really got turned on to, you know, Stax and, and uh, Atlantic and all that, that good stuff that was coming out then. And, um, you know, you sort of discover R&B singing. The, 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 my way into R&B was through these amazing vocals, you know, like, wow, how do they, how do they sing like that? And I got to be a you know, make make some uh, some black friends and go to their homes and they would sing in their homes, you know, like after dinner or something, dad would say, carry the cross. And then the whole family would join in in four part harmony. And I, my mind was blown. I'm like that. That kind of stuff never happened at my house. I don't know. <laughs> this tradition is not really familiar territory. And of course, they were yeah. they were so welcoming. You know, they they, they didn't really see you as a white kid you know you're just their their friend their son's friend or whatever and you come over for dinner and you and you eat and it was it was very eye-opening and so that was that was kind of my way in culturally into that and so like, like, like going to a baptist church for the first time yeah kind of you know but 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 really knowing knowing the families and stuff and they're being so them being so kind and welcoming and um you know and of course this is late 60s so you know there's there's a uh, racial stuff going on in the country you know and the war stuff and all that and the came of age i remember the first earth day and I, we sat in the administration building and burned our draft cards and all that stuff but meanwhile the music was really really growing on me and um i went to see i went to see i got into jazz as i told you in college and my friends and i went to see um the uh, Headhunters group, and it was a band I had never heard of. They were opening for a band I had never heard of called Earth, Wind, and Fire. <laughs> and so we were, you know, at the time, when you get into jazz, you kind of get a little bit snobby, you know, like, I don't want to listen to this pop stuff anymore. And so we watched Herbie, and he was awesome, of course. And then we, we said, you know, we don't want to stay for this pop crap. Let's leave. And so we started walking out of the arena. It's McNichols Arena in Denver with my, my band buddies. And they started dragging equipment onto the stage as we're walking out past the front and we see two two sets of congas and we see a, a drum trap drums with this round thing like what the heck is this round thing on the trap and these, all these microphones we say, maybe, maybe we should stay for one song let's just see what these guys are about you know they you know and so the lights go down and maurice comes out and, and plays kalimba song and turns out i'm front row at the gratitude tour Wow. completely ignorant of the music and the band and it's the one where Verdine is in the, the harness and he he does the bass solo and, and Shining Star I think it was and whoom and now he's flying out over McNichols Arena and we were just I mean I had smoke coming out of my ears and I was already playing a jazz bass but I said man I gotta figure out how he's getting that sound and that was our whole thing for the next month was how to get that Verdine White tone on the bass it was amazing so you know then then i was hooked into the 
pop side of, of R&B stuff. And, and later on, I got to meet a lot of, a lot of those cats, you know, Randy Muller's still a dear friend of mine from, uh, from sky and, uh, and Brad. Yeah. He's still making, he's still making records and, and, and putting things out and he calls it soul biscuit. Now, if you ever see the soul biscuit stuff in England and we talk about the good old days and he knows everybody, man, he was, he was really in the middle of that scene. Yeah, and being in New York, I mean, in the 70s, I mean, that was the fertile ground for the jazz fusion movement yeah. and yeah. so many incredible players at that time. And, you know, I've talked to a lot of guys who were there at that time and just how you could go out any given night and, and just see, soak it up. And see you know, amazing, yeah, McKells and SOBs and, uh, and Hoppers. It was, you know... The Brecker brothers were here in town at that time, and um, and the and the funks, the funk people too, were out playing at night. You know, stuff Richard T. and Stuffy Edwards. You could just go see them at McKell's. It was really, and I, I remember being being here and uh, and trying to break into the recording scene. And one of my buddies was a really good bass player. That, um, uh, he wrote this time I'll be sweeter. You know that that Roberta Flack song, and he he had some studio gigs. He showed me the chart that they gave him when they got to the studio, and then he played me the cassette of, of what they had made from the chart. And this is the real roots of, of that R&B, that session stuff, like like the Motown guys and James Jamerson. They, they take a chord chart that the arranger has written, and they make the bass lines and the guitar lines right then and there, the five of them or the four of them. And then all of a sudden, you got a song. And I'm looking at the chart going, you mean you took this E-flat and this A-flat and you made this cassette? It was amazing. So, Dave, how did your um, your skills evolve and progress? Oh, second. Come in. Hey, I'm doing an interview. You can come in and wait in the lounge. Come on in. It's totally cool. That's my 11 o'clock, man. I'm so sorry. Okay. <laughs> Sorry, okay. here we go. We cut all that out. So, how did your skills develop and evolve in the studio? Um, well, I was a, a pretty decent bass player, and uh, when drum machines came out, I remember um, my drummer really hated it. But there was a little, there was usually one trigger in the drum machine. I had an Oberheim DX, and you could put a little switch in there and play one sound so i actually brought it on the gig and put like a little foot switch on the floor next to me and i would play the bass and play claps at the same time in in the groove and the drummer was hating it but now we sounded like disco or or funk and um you know i, I started programming beats and drum machines and really going wow you know you can you can almost make this sound like a real drummer and it's, it was really really fun i remember walking past um uh, Rogue Music, which is here on 30th Street. It's an old, old music store. They sell used gear. And in the front window one day, I saw a, a computer, probably an Atari or maybe even whatever was before that. And I thought to myself, what is a computer doing in a music store? That You know, I go to get my strings, I get my guitar stand, I get my uh, pedals, but computer? So I, I got a little scared. I thought, wow, the world is going to pass me by if I don't find out what this computer stuff is about. So I, I told you I bought an Atari ST and I had Steinberg Pro 24. It looked like it looked like an Asian newspaper. You know, I couldn't figure out what was going sideways and what was going up and down. But, you know, I puzzled it out, read the manuals. 
and I got it to spit back a little something that I that I typed in, and then wow, this is really really cool. And then I, of course I told you about meeting Bob, and he had he had tape, he had an an editing block with a razor blade, so you know he's taking pieces of things and shortening them. So that was really interesting to me. And then I finally bought a Fostex uh, A track. Then I synced it up with my my drum machine. I had one little synthesizer and, and a, I could play the bass and I could play a little guitar. So, you know, little singers started coming over. This was the era of um, like, you know, what's love got to do with it? You know, pretty simple Chardet-ish kind of simple tracks. There's not that many parts. So we would listen to the parts. People would want to sing a cover of let's say what's love got to do with it and i could i could make it happen do 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 play the little flute line and uh that's how i did i started making demos of course when you're playing live you know you kind of have a little sound knowledge because you have to run your pa and you have to set your amp and balance things so the audience digs it so that was it was kind of a body of knowledge it's not directly transferable but you know you know how to work the board you know if you put the volume too loud it's going to feedback and stuff like that so that was the beginning of the skill set, I would say. And you just learn, learn while you earn, you know, keep doing it. Well, cutting tape, that's a, that's a skill that I lost <laughs> skill right there. Boy. Yeah, man. I cut a Prince Master once. We, of course, it was a copy of it, but uh, we were doing a remix of Party Man, and the, and the producer wanted to have, to have one of the choruses right now. So, shoot, we had to, I, I cut the 24 track after I duped it. <laughs> So, I want to. Uh, I, I made a list of some of the artists I saw in your credits. I wanted to just throw out there and yep. uh, find out, you know, what your involvement was, maybe how you came in the project, what your memory is of that particular. Sure, sure. Um, so, do you do you typically get to meet the artists, or you typically only work with their recordings? Yeah, usually most of those really big artists that I that I have on my credits, I. I um was just working on the record for them with their team or whoever they designated. Like on Party Man, you know, I did, the A&R guy from the label did speak to Prince when we were getting close to done and, and you know, his his man answered the phone. So I heard his voice way in the background going, yeah, man, it's cool. <laughs> but now somebody like Luther came to my studio and sang and, and um, Luther was a, was a sweetheart. I, I missed up, you know, he was very meticulous about his vocal punching. You know, we would punch a breath. He'd say, you know, I don't like the way that breath sounds right before that phrase, you know, so we're just going to punch the breath, okay? And, okay, now we're talking tape with, you know, logistics and breaks and speed and everything, and you have to be in and out. So one punch of Luther's I actually did mess up, and, and he was in the booth, and I thought he was going to, you know, be really upset, and he said, that must have been that acid you took in college. <laughs> he was he was a sweetheart, and that came through Fonzie Thornton, who I knew for a long time. He's a background singer in town and a, and a well-known guy. He was Luther's, you know, kind of best friend and took care of a lot of Luther's business and stuff. So that was that was fun. Diggable Planets I met through um, the man my manager and their manager shared an office, and they were unhappy with the way things were going. They were doing a Coneheads um, song for the Coneheads movie. And um, they were unhappy with the way it was going. And they said, you know, who can come in and save this? And, they, and the, the other manager recommended me. And I went over and met them. And we became lifelong friends. I worked on tons of stuff with them. How, how does uh, your approach differ if it's a, um, 
you know, R&B like Luther or versus uh, hip hop versus something that's rockier? How, how do you approach it differently? Well, the main the main thing is when you meet somebody you never worked with, is you have to make them feel, number one, make them feel as comfortable as possible. And number two, make them feel like there's nothing you would rather do in life than make their record better. You know, that's the, that's the vibe you have to walk in with. And you have to have a little sense of urgency, like, oh, um, could you move the mic up a little bit? You, you know, you can't saunter in. You can't have a sip of coffee and saunter in and move the mic. You have to jump up out of your chair and go, yeah, man, you know, how's this? Does this feel okay? Is this how you like it? You know, and, and once you establish that rapport that, you know, you'll do whatever it takes to further them, then they, then they chill and they, they begin to learn to like you. Um, on the Sting album I did, he had already started it in, um, in his castle in Italy and they had gone to LA to do vocals and he wasn't happy. So the producer brought them back and said, I know a guy in New York who's great with vocals to do. First thing he says is, I don't, well, first he walks in and who's the new guy? You know, that's Dave, you're gonna like him. Hi, hi Dave. I don't want to hear those cellos, you know, and I'm looking at this song for the very first time. There's hundreds of tracks and they're automated. So I, I turn off the cellos and I press play and the cellos pop back on because the automation pops. And he's, no, I don't want to hear those cellos. Oh, I'm sorry. And I, I finally get them off and I'm thinking, man, I blew I blew this gig. I won't be here tomorrow. And then, and, you know, but we worked all day and he's like, you know, I'd like to do the bridge again. And I'm musical, so I know where the bridge is. A lot of engineers Hmm, where's the bridge? You know, is that two minutes, 17 seconds? You know, by the, after I listened to the song once, I've written down the marks where everything was. If it's tape and if it's um, Pro Tools or something, you can type that and you can see it. So the, you know, the point being, be a member of their band. You know, if he says we want to rehearse the bridge, go, yeah, okay, I'm ready. But I'm the engineer, but I'm ready on the bridge, even though I'm not a player. So it's really, it's really important to let them know that, you know, you, You've got your co-pilot chair really covered, and you're you're on the ball. And then then people relax, and then you start swapping stories. You know, then then you then your boys after that. It's really fun. Yeah, that sounds like it would be for sure. Um, where does the uh, producer's role and the engineer's role intersect, and how do they differ? It's a big. It's it's getting blurrier, blurrier and blurrier. I just did a. a um, <clears throat> A video course for the Waves plug-in company and that was the thrust of, of what we were talking about. The course was built around the idea that production and mixing is is blurred now and so we talked, interviewed some really top producers and I asked them when, when do you start mixing and they said you know from the first sound that I record because it used to be the domain of the giant consoles and you know thousand dollar a day studios and that and you had to be an engineer to work all that technology to further the producer's idea. But now the producers all have Logic or, or Performer or Pro Tools or, or Ableton, and they're able to pull in these plugins that I've made presets for, and they can go, you know, Dave Darlington master, and then they have my chain right there. So that's good and bad. You know, I, I still feel like they, they trust me to finalize the things. Like for example, Randy works in, uh, he was working in Logic now, and his mixes are great by the time I get them. So we, we spend most of the day just a being between his mix and what we what we're doing currently to make sure it's an improvement, you know. So how was that snare? Okay, great. How's that slap on the vocals? Great. Yeah, no, I think you had it a little better. Let's look at your file and see what you had. So now we're collaborating more as um, 
as technicians and, and mixers, everybody knows the plugins and stuff. Oh, what do you use? Oh, I like to use this delay. So we trade on on that level. It's it's very blurry now producing and mixing. And um, most of the producers I know are actually really, really good mixers. Their stuff comes to me 95% done and I just polish it a little bit. Have you ever had a situation where um, you thought that the material was best served with a particular mix or sound and the artist or the producer were like, no, we want it this way. And you're like, okay, whatever. Yeah, no, that's, that happens quite a bit. It usually happens with younger artists, you know, uh, who want to be assertive. And I, I don't really mind that because, you know, that's the younger people are kind of the lifeblood. You have to tell yourself not to be an ageist and not to be like, no, I know better than you, you know, Sometimes, sometimes young kids, they really kind of don't know what they're doing, but they come up with something really ingenious. You know, you can't, you can't block that off or be the guy that says, you know, no, you know, get off my grass. You know, no, you can't, you can't do that. That's wrong. Now, on the other hand, sometimes the singers, you know, they do want their voice up a little, a little too loud. So where the music sounds not as strong as it could be. And, you know, I always I always let them have a pass of the the way they want it. Nine times out of ten, I'll get an email of like, maybe you could bring that vocal down a half a dB and bounce one for us. And of course I can. <laughs> Would you say overall it's a little simpler nowadays if you know the technology? Um, because in general, there's fewer instrument, uh, you know, musicians, real musicians playing a bunch of different intricate parts and things like that. Well, it's, it's, a, it's a, that's another mixed bag. You know, it's, we can get a lot done in a short time because of the technology. We can come back to it a year later and it's going to pop up exactly like it was. I mean, think about in the 70s, if you made a mix and you regretted the hi-hats level the next day, you know, it was a couple thousand dollars to go back to that studio and plug everything in again. And make sure it matched. Oh, now the background background vocals don't sound. Oh, here's why. You know, somebody bumped the compressor. You know, two thousand dollars later, you brought your hi hat down a half a dB. Now you're now you don't have the regret. Nowadays, we can go back and and kibitz a whole album in an afternoon. It's super easy. But it it also makes people very lazy, particularly the players. I mean, even good players. And I I kind of roll my eyes at these guys. Oh, you know, you got what you need, right? You can edit later. No, nah, man, learn the song and play it down like like the way they used to do. But th that's the times we're in. But, you know, as well as I do, the, m the more you can get that human factor the first time and, and everything right and the good sound and also the interplay between players. Uh, I'm, I'm set up today to do a session where um, we're recording uh, some violin and the producer is a trumpet player. They're going to play together because he wants he wants the interaction and um you know, I think that's really smart. I think that's great. They're going to be watching each other and bouncing off each other's ideas, and it's it's going to be much cooler than just having one overdub at a time. That well, for me, that's where the magic happens. Absolutely. So you already mentioned a few of the artists I had on my list. Let me uh, jump okay. through a few more. Uh, Vanessa Williams. Vanessa Williams. I I was lucky enough to be in in that that very first uh, the, the big album. Um, Bruce Carbone was one of the A&R guys on that album, and he knew me from work that we'd done together. So there was a song called Freedom Dance that they had started that they hadn't finished, and they wanted to finish it in New York. So I got to come in and do and program some overdubs and mix it. And um, I had 
Vanessa came to hear it and everything, but well, I didn't record her at that time. However, the album was a smash, of course, and I, I actually worked on uh, running, running Back to You a, a little bit. Um, those producers came into Counterpoint to, to do some overdubs. But Vanessa remembered me, and we just made a new album together literally eight, nine months ago. We went and recorded with her band, and uh, her pianist, Henry Hay, produced it, and it's, it's really, really good. She's, you know, she still sings great. She still looks great, and she's just the nicest person to work with you ever want to meet. And she remembered me from back at the, in those times, which I was flabbergasted. And we had a great time. We had we cut strings. We actually in my studio cut some strings, and um, and she did her vocals here. It was it was awesome. It came out great. Wow, uh, Phyllis Hyman. Phyllis Hyman was also a dear friend. The the songwriters, the lyricists on on um, Don't Want to Change the World introduced me to her. Um, in fact, in fact, Will Downing actually sang the demo, but. Um, but they knew Nick Martinelli, her producer. They had had some covers of their writing with Nick. So we had this song, Don't Want to Change the World. And um, they they pitched it to Nick. And Nick said, this will be great for Phyllis. So um, we cut it in Miami. I flew, I flew to Miami with Nick uh, and Phyllis. And he's he's he doesn't produce anymore. He still lives in Miami. But he was the consummate, I call it, diva whispering. Because, you know, all, all these stars have a little bit of self-doubt, you know, and particularly Phyllis was a little nutty. And he was just like, oh, honey, it's going to be great. You sound fabulous. And, you know, he would just say whatever would need to be. I, I was amazed watching that happen. He was, he was the first diva whisperer I ever really met. And she was, just loved him. She sang great. And, and it became a hit. Now, we were, we were actually working on a song when, when she passed away here in this studio. And I, I have a chorus with no verses. She never got to finish the verses. And um, of course, Gamble and Huff own the rights to that. But she would sit here on the sofa. She would not go in, in, in through the glass because you know how when the singer's behind the glass and you finish a take, if you don't press the talkback button, they don't hear you, but they can see your mouths moving. So, you know, if you turn to one another and go, she would get very nervous about like what are you guys saying about my singing is everything okay so she refused to go in the in behind the glass and she sat right here on the sofa with a handheld very much that marvin Gaye style that you hear about and she was singing she she was singing the demo of, of the song uh it's called found another lover someone like no other and i have the chorus on my backup drives but i don't have a, i don't have any verses well given her um in her state and and have the the uh, diva whispering and all that would she require a lot of takes to really get it right or oh she she was amazing i mean she would do multiple takes just to be sure but i mean yeah i, I knew about her from I, I used to love those norman connor's records you know that she's on and um you know i knew about her way long before i met her and i always thought her voice all those philly international voices if you think about it there's really Lou Rawls, like who else sounds like Lou Rawls, and who else sounds like Phyllis Hyman, who else sounds like Teddy Pendergrass? They're you, they're like one of one of a kind voices. So, um, and believe me, when she sings, she, there's there's a few singers I could name. There, I always call it the, the you know thanks for the goosebumps because you know sometime during that hour, the hair on your arm is going to stand up. You know who else is like that is Jocelyn Brown. 
Jocelyn Brown, she lives in England now. We're old, old friends. I was on one of her very first tours with somebody else's guy. And um, man, when she when she lets loose and, and gets that gospel spirit, and but you're doing a funk tune, there's, there's no, nobody can touch it. It's it's unbelievable. Like you're just in the booth in the control room, going, man, this is why I do this. Now I remember why I stay yeah. and and I don't see my family because every once in a while. There's there's some human there's some humanity that you can't understand how it's even possible. It's just incredible. Wow, Whitney Houston was like that too. I, I the way I met Whitney was her mother was making an album uh, of gospel and she wanted to have the family on some of the songs and Whitney was already a very big star and Joe Jubert was the producer. He's a big time um, Broadway guy now and Benny Diggs was the was his partner. And we had to wait for Whitney. She, you know, she was so busy and everything. We booked the studio, and a whole day she couldn't make it. Well, she's coming, she's coming. No, she's not coming. And finally, the next day she came, and and that was she. She was very nice too, even though she was already a superstar. What about um, Janet Jackson? Janet Jackson. And I was just working with um, C.J. McIntosh, who was, you know, she had approval of everything, but I didn't really meet her. But we. Uh, we did that's that's the way love goes the version the clubby version that was all over the radio that's the CJ McIntosh version. So she, she has a lots of layers. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> and the staff, um, similar to Prince, probably. Yeah. Um, Jody Wiley. Yeah, Jody Wiley. That was a Masters at Work gig, and um, and she was really. I mean, I loved Shalimar when Shalimar was out, and. Um, she was very, very professional and dedicated. You know, not she's a non-diva. She, you know, she'll work and work and work and very, very nice to everybody. Always concerned if if I was comfortable and I was thinking, you know, Jody, it's my job to make you comfortable. But thanks for asking. Yeah, she was she was one of the ones that falls into the non-diva category and and a great singer. You know, she was she's a really good interpretive singer in terms of uh, the message of the song what about uh some of the singers that maybe aren't so great maybe their voices are kind of thin um how is it from your position to you know make them sound better than maybe they really are yeah i mean you know today today we have a lot of technology um back in those analog days we used to run we used to synchronize the MIDI controls of a thing called the um, H3000 harmonizer, which you could pitch. So, you know, if the vocal was a little bit sour, we would run it through the harmonizer, which was tracking MIDI and syncing up to the MIDI. And then I would dial plus and minus, you know, to, to get the pitch. And then you'd rewind the tape and listen, oh, it's a little too far. So you would edit the, the MIDI data. Of course, now we have Melodyne and, and Auto-Tune. And the trick, the trick nowadays with those things is to be so benign that people don't even realize you're using it. Even on really pretty well-known singers nowadays, I'll go in and touch up a note here or there, but you, you keep the nuance of the note. You keep the scooping and the vibrato and everything. You just make the center of the note hit the target, and suddenly that's... That's a, that's a good sound and everything. When somebody's um, maybe some of the younger singers are thin, then you have to use kind of effects and stuff to disguise it, delays or you know saturation, the, the, the plugins that emulate tape saturation to make them a little fatter sounding. 
But you know, you really can't beat a good performance ultimately, right? But, you know, it's there's old saying, it's not the mix, it's the arrangement. And you know, if the performance is there and the arrangement is great and things aren't getting in each other's way and they're they're augmenting each other, then the mix is easy, man. You just balance it like make music out of it. Now you mentioned uh, seeing Herbie in the seventies, which yeah. uh, I envy you there. I'm such a big uh, Herbie fan. Uh, I did see him in the late seventies, but not in that prime Headhunters. Yeah. Well, uh, I, I always loved the I loved the septet, you know, prior to Headhunters with yes. you know, Vanny Maupin and Eddie Henderson. That was my that was my stuff. The Warner Brothers years when it, Crossings and and Mawandishi. He was just making some otherworldly stuff, but then you know he can funk. I mean, there's YouTube videos out there of, of um, I, I don't know, it's playing with Omar and Stanley and, and the, the, the funk, the body language of the funk, and they're just grinning and smiling. And they're having such a good time when they're playing their behinds off. It's incredible. It's phenomenal. So, but you eventually got to get a credit with him. Yeah, I, I worked a little bit on. Um, on Gershwin's world towards the end of it as a sort of a, a consultant. I did some some moving parts around and everything. Uh, the producer of that record, Robert Satan, is a dear, dear friend. He's another one of my, my rabbis. And uh, he um, he's all about quality. You know, in fact, on that record, he actually called the factory and told them to hold up the press because he felt the ballad was a little too loud compared to the others. And he wanted to go back on Monday and have the mastering engineer bring it down and he got in trouble from the record company like you don't call the press we call the plant you don't call the plant he's like well but the ballad was a little too loud you know okay and uh so he you know he brought me in towards the end of the process and bruce swedine was the mix engineer on that and we would sit at the end of the day when bruce went home and and play back the mixes and he would ask me what did I think? And could we use a little more horns? And how loud was the voice and stuff like that? So I got to do a little tracking, and I was a mix consultant. It was really great. That is very cool. All those, like, um, what was it, 20, 20 to 30 years later from when you saw him perform? Yeah, right. Yeah, right. But, you know, I've, got, I've gotten to brush shoulders with all of the Miles second great quintet. Ron Carter's been here. In fact, Ron Carter gave me his pickup. He bought a new pickup for his upright. And he's, you know, we were working together on something for Donald Harrison. And he uh, said, Dave, what are you doing tomorrow? And I said, well, I'm busy tomorrow, but I get off at 7 on Wednesday. He goes, meet me at the Blue Note. I got something for you. I thought he was going to give me one of his method books or maybe sign a CD or something. So I got to the Blue Note, and he was having a, a seltzer at the bar. And, hey, hey Ron. Because I want you to have this. And it was a, his old pickup from his upright because he had just gotten a new one. We we play the same upright bass. We, we found out by vibing. And uh, he says, you know, we play the same instrument. I want you to have this. I'm like, you got to be kidding me. So I actually, on my upright in my house, have Ron Carter's pickup. How cool is that? I mean, that's like having a Mickey Mantle autographed baseball. Come on. Absolutely. Wow. <laughs> I was fortunate enough to get to see the uh, reunited Return to Forever at the Blue Note a few years oh, back with Stanley yeah. on acoustic, and nice. that was phenomenal. Yeah, those records were so important to us because we were rockers and jazzers, and that was the mel the meld of that, you know, Mahavishnu Orchestra and, of course, Weather Report. Jocko grew up an hour north of me in Fort Lauderdale, and he was a year older than me. And, you know, there was always rumors about this kid that could really play. And I'm in high school, like, oh, I can't be that good. 
then I finally saw him a couple times in, in the Miami area, and then I went off to college, and the next thing I know, his solo album comes out, and he's the bass player in Weather Report. Like, holy, holy moly, this guy really did hit the big time, and, and deservedly so, you got to say. Let's see, a few more uh, quick hits here, Dave. Um, Pieces of a Dream. Yeah, Pieces of a Dream are, are good buddies of mine. They're, they're in Philadelphia, and that, that also comes through Danny, the guy that took me over to Counterpoint. He's an A&R guy at Shanaki Records now, which they, they kind of, they were a world label, but they kind of made their bones in smooth jazz and gospel and stuff. And um, yeah, they're, they're, they're great guys. They're super talented. There's really just the two of them, and they, um, they program all their own stuff. I've mastered quite a few of them, and I think I've mixed two of the latest ones. So they're they're, they're really fun guys. And kind of in a similar vein, the uh, jazz funk soul with Jeff Lorber. Yeah, that's that's because I really knew. Um, uh, oh my god, my brain. Chuck Loeb was was uh, was my buddy for years and years. He was you know he was a session guy around town and one of the greatest guitar players I ever met. And that also that also came through Shanaki, but but Chuck uh, recommended me for that, so that was yeah Lorber's and Karen White. You know he discovered Karen White really. She was in the Jeff Lorber fusion, and then she hooked up with L.A. and Babyface. Did you work with her at all? Uh, I worked on that album some because the A and R the A and R guys were here in New York. Dave Shaw was one of the A and R guys, so I actually heard. Um, What's the early in the morning? Superwoman. Um, the the tape of that has Babyface singing the lead exactly the way Karen White sings it on track twenty three. He he ghosted it so that she could copy it. I'm not your superwoman, but he's singing it in the female key. You know, Babyface has that high false. Yeah. And it's amazing. I mean, I, t I took it off to Dad. This is years ago now, but I can remember, man. I got to get this on Dad because nobody will believe it that Babyface actually sang Superwoman. But huh. that's how they would do their demos for the artists. You know, they would really be mocked up perfectly for them. There reminds me of the uh, Prince release. They just put out the originals. It has yeah. him laying it down for all those other yeah. artists. Uh, yeah, he, he could do all the parts. You know, he didn't really didn't need anybody else. Yeah. Um, soul to soul. Yeah, soul to soul. I met through um, through Paul Simpson, and that was uh, that was a Paul Simpson um, uh, remix. And um, I actually went up to the store in, in Camden Town to, to to meet everybody when I was there in the in the probably eighty nine or ninety. And um, yeah, that that was just a, that was a, that was a remix gig, and um, I worked on. Beach of the War Goddess, I think, was the name of her solo album, wasn't it? Am I, am I, you're asking me to remember things. I'm, I've got old, old age disease right now, man. I'm trying to remember all the credits. Karen Wheeler. Karen Wheeler, yeah. Yeah, I, yeah I Beach of the War Goddess. I, worked, I did most of that album, of her solo album. But she, she had moved to, you know, she's in New York. And, um, but, you know, man, I always love those vocals. I, I, you know, when you get to hear them on the multitrack, however do you own me? When you solo those vocals, they're incredible. And, you know, they're super layered. You know, I'm sure they had a, a, a safety of the track, and they did 24 tracks of stacked vocals to do that. Um, I live at the top of the stairs. It's That's another hair-raising moment when you hear those vocals in solo. She's, she's wonderful. 
uh, mint condition? Yeah, mint. Yeah, Stokely's been here a bunch of times, man. He it, he's a uh, he's the leader and producer of the band, and um, super smart mixer. You know, so we we mix together, and um, and uh, I've mastered a couple of theirs since then. They you know they're they're mostly um, touring, so they do it wherever they can. But um, but we're buddies. He calls me every once in a while. Hey, man, I saw this new plugin. Do you think I should get it? So, you know, he likes to pick my brain about about what's hot. You studio geeks together. Studio geeking out. But he's <laughs> he's a killing musician. So, I mean, Mint Condition, you know, you think about that stuff as live. It sounds sequenced. They're so tight. You know, their rhythm is so good. And he's he's he plays on other people's stuff, too. I've heard some stuff where he's been a guest on other people's stuff. And it's just great. He's a really, really good musician. And he knows the studio. So, you know, he knows how to get really good sounds really quickly been doing it a long long time yeah they're like part of the endangered species of you know actual r&b yeah yeah like the roots you know the roots are kind of keeping that going now but yeah mid condition was the precursor to them mm -hmm. um arthur baker you worked with him yeah of course the shakedown studios we worked on the on uh listen up by quincy jones which had all those I don't know if you remember that. So it was the movie about Quincy's life, and it had the the guest, um, like thousands of guest artists, Chaka Khan, and this one and that one, and that was analog. So he had, you know, the LA two A, the, the the limiter that you use on vocals because it's a tube and it's warm. So we had one LA two A rented for each singer, and the singers would be on the same track, so they would we would split them out to a different fader and pop them on and off. Okay, now it's Stevie, now it's Chaka, and now here it's so and so. And the stack of LA two A's, I can remember me. Wor I was worried it was going to tip over because it was so tall. There had to be twelve or thirteen of them stacked up to the roof. We rented everyone in town, and he worked on that mix for probably two weeks. He had a studio called Shakedown, and you know, he was the first. He was the first guy I knew. A person not a business that actually bought an ssl board i remember him telling me yeah dave i just paid off the last payment on the ssl uh, you know i didn't have any any equipment of that nature at the time i thought man that's incredible you actually own one of these giant robotic boards that's amazing and he kept it, he kept it for many years but uh you know we still i still talk to him i mean through facebook or whatever all the time he lives in miami now and um but he was he was kind of a diva producer, you know. He could be he could be rough on people if you weren't giving him what you were doing. But if you if you were doing what he was asking of you, then he was, you know, your best buddy and very supportive. And uh, you know, I, I love him dearly, man. He's great. But I, I've seen him get angry at, at people before. <laughs> but super smart, you know. He's a D, basically a DJ, you know. And the, the thing about the DJ as producer is they have their pulse on the zeitgeist. They're out there playing these giant parties all the time. So, I mean, you know, who knew that that Bombada thing would be such a huge thing? Well, he's, he always told me that he knew right away what they had, you know, before it came out. And yeah. he's, he's proved it over and over and over. He's done it, he's done it a million times. He's worked with you, too. He's worked with a lot of cats. <laughs> yeah, that's quite a path. Yeah. Um, and what did you win your first Grammy for? How did that feel when that happened? That was actually Wayne Shorter. And um, it wasn't even on my mind that it was even up for a Grammy. I was just so psyched, stoked to be um, working with Wayne Shorter. And um, 
that was anal those were analog days so we did mixes in various rooms about town one of the songs on that album is actually the rough mix after the session we never could beat it and um wayne's instructions to me as he left you know he's finished recording he doesn't want to know anything about the mixing he said dave make it sound like acapulco at sunrise and i thought okay i I guess so. And then I thought about it, and, you know, that means actually something, you know, make it pastel and, and gauzy and, you know, orange and blue, you know, light pastel and watercolory. That's kind of what we went for on that album. And um, so I, I then knew it had won the Grammy, but I wasn't thinking about this, the actual statue or anything. There's tons of people worked on that record. I would just came in late as I tracked a bunch of it and, um, and got to, I mixed the whole thing. So I get I could get home one day from work with my uh, I was with my wife somewhere because we got out of the car together and there's a box on the porch. We bring uh, did you order something? No, I didn't order. What is this? We brought it inside and I opened up the box and I took out the foam piece from the top and I didn't, I didn't look in the box. I looked at the foam and of course it was the silhouette, the negative of the Grammy shape. You know the phone, the gramophone shape. I was like, holy. Mm, look at what this is and there there it was in the box that's 2003 and i'm listed as the mixer and um you know it was it was one of my one of my proudest moments and the fact of who it is i mean it's wayne shorter you weather report was probably one of the biggest things in my college youth you know i'm trying to learn how to play jazz and people are telling me you know listen to kind of blue and but, but i like this rock stuff and it's funky and now I have a Grammy with one of the founding members of Weather Report, and I'm, I couldn't be prouder of that. I mean, if that's the only thing I ever did in the business, I'd be okay. <laughs> that description uh, had a certain uh, of what he was looking for, a certain Miles Davis kind of. Totally. Well, Wayne is a Wayne is a kind of a high high concept space cadet. You know, like he just wants you like he'll be putting his horn together, you know, and he'll say like, "I'm so excited about what's about to happen." You know, he's just one of those, one of those savants. You know, he he knows that any given day you could make the next great thing. Wow! I know we're getting tight on our time. Do you have time yeah. for two more two more questions? Sure, absolutely. Okay. Um, out of all of this, Dave, maybe it was just what you said, uh, but can you um, maybe pick out one or two of the most vivid memories on this? trip you've had yeah we've, we've we've kind of touched on them you know being being in the room re recording wayne um jocelyn brown singing uh you know going to england to work uh, well meeting meeting um george martin in the studio um i we were over there working on adiva who was a um, jersey jersey house she was actually a school teacher, I, I, I think, and she was a killing singer. So we're working on the, her record for um, Cool Tempo, and I'm at I'm at Air Studios in London, the George Martin's Air Group, and um, I, I say to the secretary, you know, I'm a huge fan of George Martin. If he's around, if he if I could just say hello and tell him what he meant, she said, oh, I'll, I'll pass it along. He's working in his own. He has his own private studio A. I was in Studio B, the Wings studio, where Paul McCartney made a lot of Wings records. Sure enough, four o'clock, tea time, ding, 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 ding. So George will see you now. 
So I walked six feet off the ground down to Studio A and knocked on the door. I said, oh, come on in. We're just finishing up. And he was doing an opera singer singing pop in one of those kind of records. And the score was strewn across the board. And his engineer was riding. George was pointing to the score. And the engineer was riding the, the oboe or whatever it was. And he finished up. And he spent about an hour just, you know, oh, you so you're an engineer? Oh, yes, great. You know, and I was trying to get him to talk about Beatle records and you know you've you've made so many great records. Can you tell me about some of them? And he 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 ended up talking about Live and Let Die, the James Bond song. Well, we made a little tune for a James Bond film. You know, you know. I'm sure he's he's been asked to do that shtick a million times. He's probably got it down to a science. But to me, it was fresh. And he was so kind and so generous with his time. He he stayed another 45 minutes after his session just. Chewing the fat, and we got to take a picture. And uh, you know, here's a guy who basically invented a genre, <laughs> or, or at least guided it into existence. You know, back in the day. Wow, incredible! Um, what would you recommend to uh, somebody today if they want to, um, you know, get into recording their own music? Um, you know, what would you start with? Well, you know. There's, there's two things, there's two skill sets, you know, the musical skill set. So you have to really practice an instrument. You can't just pick up a violin and expect to be Asha Heifetz. It's not going to happen. You know, playing an instrument is a serious, serious lifetime commitment, even a guitar or a synthesizer or something. You know, you can't, you can do the presets and, you know, the preset beats. That's great. But, you know, you really have to learn. And there's, like anything, there's levels. So you learn some chords, you learn some scales, you you copy some melodies by ear and you, you build your pool of knowledge. And it's really the same in recording. You know, the first time I plugged in a microphone, you know, it was over compressed and it didn't sound so great. And you learn which pieces of equipment sound better than others. You learn which plugins work better than others. You, you learn not to overdo things, just like in playing, you know, somebody who, who can play a lot and real fast, like, you know, oh, this is great, this is great. You know what, it'd be great if you left a little space once in a while. That's what would be great. And the same with engineering. It would be great if you took out some of those plugins and just let the tone speak for itself. So, you know, my advice would be, A, a be tenacious. Be open to anything in your music, in your, in your music learning. And always say yes. Be a can-do person. Outstanding. Dave, it's been a blast. It's Thank been a blast. So I'm sorry it's so short, man, but I have some killer musicians here. Uh, Brian Lynch and Regina Carter are about to do like a serious duet. So uh, so let me go take care of them, and, um, and we'll talk soon. Absolutely. Thank you so much. See you. Bye-bye. Hey, back at Truth and Rhythm headquarters. Thank you for joining us on another magical ride with Truth and Rhythm. Whether you're watching or listening, as always, thank you so much for your continued interest and support. Be sure to subscribe. Go to YouTube. Go to the Funkin' Stuff channel. That's where Truth and Rhythm lives and breathes and thrives. Also, goodies here like TIR Quick Takes. And if you subscribe, you know what? You get the show before anyone else. It's free. If you love jazz, funk, R&B, soul, you can't miss it. Pass it along. Tell a friend. Tell family. This audience is growing and it is a beautiful thing all coming together for the love of this great music also if you can throw us a buck or two we could use the support financially keeping the lights on keeping the servers going 
all these expenses. If you can help support the program, whatever you can give, much appreciated. Go to the FunkinStuff.net website. On the right-hand side of every page, you just click and you can donate through PayPal, credit card, whatever. Very easy to do and so much appreciated. And if you do a sizable donation, I will mention you on the program. Also, drop me a line. Email me at scottg at funkinstuff.net. Let me know who else you'd like to see on the show, what you enjoy about the music. Let's just kibitz and uh, talk about stuff, you know, talk music. You'll find that I respond very quickly, and I much enjoy the uh, rapport and the camaraderie and the interaction. Always remember, this is your show, The True Music Lover. So for now, that's all the time we have for this one. It's a wrap. As always, Scott Dr. GX Goldfine saying, keep on vibrating to the rhythm of the one.